Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you are here. It's the beginning of uh, spring break and also the beginning of Holy Week. I, we've been working our way for the last, uh, well, since Lent started, which is this season that gets us ready for Easter. We've been on this series um, called Godly Hospitality. What is it that we can really understand about hospitality that will help us um, grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ? And most of those talks have run in one of two directions. One, we have sought to remind us together over and over that first and foremost, Jesus Christ has welcomed us. That's the first thing we want you to know, that there's this biblical imagery of hospitality that over and over and over again paints God as the one who welcomes us at this glorious, magnificent feast. We want people to make sure that you know in the middle of us calling one another into deeper, intentional hospitality, that that starts because God first has welcomed us, seen us, recognized us, invited us to the table, and said, I'm so glad that you are here. But secondly, what we then have said is since he has invited every tongue, tribe, nation, and race of people to gather around, that now, as part of that story, that redemption story, now we are invited, in fact called, to exercise that hospitality with the people who are around us. We are invited to to practice this work of seeing the people who are around us, inviting them into our midst, reenacting this story of God's hospitality as people come into our homes and sit at our tables, eat our food, and are loved and welcomed by us as we share stories and tales of our life. There's a third leg of this little triangle of welcome of God and us, there's one other direction that needs to be um, talked about. But first, I want to tell you, we, the Hanson family, have found the secret to hospitality. You might want to take a note on this one, okay? We know the secret sauce. If, if you want to practice hospitality and, and have sort of people come to you and you get to sort of learn and leverage and exercise the gifts of hospitality, here's what you must do. You must have nine puppies. <laughs> there they are. They were born just about a week and a half uh, before this Lenten season started. And they have been the primary story of our home's energy and life together uh, since they were born until yesterday when we dropped them off to their owners. Here's another picture of them just before we dropped them off. Yeah, you think they're cute because you don't have to do any work. Here's what we learned about this. You know, our, one of our daughters, this was one of those those, uh, every year during Lent, we try to do something as a family very intentionally, sort of spiritual, about getting ready for Easter. Lent is usually for us a very big deal. And one of our daughters this year said, you know, I'm so sad we didn't really do anything this year for Lent. But then we started talking about it, and we realized these puppies were our Lenten practice of hospitality. 
Amy and I sort of looked at a calendar and tried to do the math on it. And for at least the last 20 days, the last three weeks in a row, there was not a day when we didn't have someone come into our house, usually with about two minutes warning. We had elementary school students and neighbors and middle schoolers and high schoolers and fishy and club leaders and university age students and elders and trustees and na- Every day we had people in our home. We got the opportunity to exercise this welcome we've been inviting you all to be part of on a daily basis. Sure, we were just about ready to, um, you know, make dinner. You should come in. We'd love to tell you about these puppies. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm still wearing my pajamas. You should come in and, you know, spend a little bit of time with our puppies. Yeah, the kids are working on this huge homework project. Come on in. Come on in. And what Amy and I have learned over this, first of all, we were able to say to our daughters, we have been in the middle of a Lenten practice of hospitality. We've been right in the middle of it. You might have missed it, but it's been there. And what Amy and I have realized, I want to sort of give this to you one more time as a reminder. What we've been saying, this is what hospitality is. When we think and talk about what are we really talking about when it seems, comes to recognizing and stretching out with God's welcome to someone else. It's just this. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intention. That's it. Now, I've heard people do really amazing things to try to find some way to do that. Some people have started leaving an open chair with a place setting just as a reminder that God has called them and invited them to live a more hospitable life. Other people, as I suggested from a friend of mine, have started like dedicating a certain night, that is hospitality night, all comers, come on. Other people have changed the way that they've started to pray for their guests before they arrive. As they're setting down the the table or getting the food and chips out or whatever it is, they've been praying with more specificity. Rather, Lord, not instead of, you know, not just, Lord, I hope they had a good day. But Lord, I hope that they will experience your welcome as they come into our house. Lord, I hope that you will teach us how to intentionally listen to the burdens and hurts that they have as we eat together. Lord, will you help us when the time is right with the right words to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? It's been an extraordinary series to challenge us to a a new kind of a life with neighbors and friends and with family. We've been missing one, and today is the perfect day to do it. This, This passage that we already read has like this one final theme of hospitality that I I really want to make sure that we don't miss. This one is like key to life. This is key to life. So I want to I want to pray and we'll get into it. Let's let's pray, shall we? God, in your graciousness, you have gathered us here together. We thank you for that. And with varying degrees of readiness of heart, we have sung your praises. We've lifted up minds and hearts and will to you in prayer. And now we come to your word, hoping, praying, trusting that you will nourish us and show us and teach us. 
So your word never returns void. We pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would truly be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So on Palm Sunday, every year, we celebrate this moment when Jesus is welcomed straight into the city. People are laying down cloaks and palms, anything they can, to protect the way from dust so he can like walk right on into the center. And it might be easy to sort of miss, but what I really think this is about is us extending a welcome directly to the Lord. You might know this passage. I'm going to talk about this passage quite a bit today. This is from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus has uh, been sending letters of, uh, through John, the things he wants these churches to know, and this is what he says right at the end of that collection of letters. Here I am. Behold, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. There it is again, this theme of hospitality. I stand at the door and knock, and if you let me in, we will begin to have beautiful fellowship. We'll begin to have an opportunity to be in a relationship. So even as God welcomes us and we welcome others in God's name, there's also an invitation for us to accept and welcome Jesus Christ into our own lives. How many of you have seen this painting? Kind of cheesy, looks like it was, you know, 1950s, trying to look like Jesus, very, you know, whatever. This painting and anything that's sort of like it actually was, was taken from a painting um, painted in 1850 by a guy, I'm going to get his name wrong if I don't remember, by William Holman Hunt. And this is the painting, and I actually like it better. It looks almost the same, doesn't it? There we go. All right, here's what I love about this painting. First of all, I love that it actually is darker. It's a little bit harder to, to see. I recognize that. What I love about it, um, if you could, you know, uh, if you Google it later, I think what you'll see is um, the only light in the entire painting is coming from Jesus. The only light is coming from Jesus, and, he, and he's come up to this door that looks like maybe it hasn't been opened for quite a while. In fact, there are kind of weeds and thistles and such that are growing in front of where the door will open. And when this painting first came out, the people who first saw it, it actually sort of um, ignited this whole new spiritual fervor of devotional work. Christians started looking at it and realizing, actually, Lord, I think that's me. I know you've been knocking on the door of my heart, and I have not been letting you in. In fact, the place where you had come in has, has become grown over. It's dark, and it needs your light. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. There's one other really important thing to notice about both paintings. You won't find this exact um, idea in the Scriptures, but you will find this idea in the Scriptures. There is no door handle on the outside. 
The only way that this door will open, where Jesus Christ can come in, is if you open the door. Jesus will not force his way into your life. He's not interested in breaking and entering. Jesus will knock and knock and wait for you to open the door of your heart that he may come in. That's what Jesus does. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Well, if we open the door, if we kind of start cracking it open, if we push away those thistles and and find some way to clear the brush for Jesus Christ, and he actually will help us do that, what happens then? If we open the door to Jesus Christ and he begins to have fellowship with us, he, he will sit with us and eat with us and we will eat with him, what will begin to happen? How will you know even if you have actually let Jesus come into your heart? What are some of the signs that we might know that Jesus Christ has actually planted himself in our hearts? To seek to understand this, I uh, spent this week looking at the other places in the Gospels where Jesus is a guest to someone. And there's actually a lot of places where Jesus um, is being hosted by somebody in a meal. He was a traveling preacher. Except for the time when he feeds the 5,000, almost every other time there's any reference to food, Jesus has been invited to someone else's um, home or property or circumstance to have and to share that meal. So what will happen? Well, the first thing I want to say that's clear throughout the Scriptures is simply this. You will receive the gift of salvation. He'll come right down the center aisle of the city of your heart, and you will yell out, Hosanna. You will receive the gift of salvation. But then there's other stories that are really worth thinking about. One of them is uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And, and the first thing that I want to say to you or point out to you is this, is you will, just a second, you will lose your hurry. The more you have said yes to Jesus and you find yourself in fellowship with him, the more you will lose your hurry. Luke chapter 10 has the story of these two sisters, Martha and Mary, and they've invited Jesus to come in to a, a, have a meal in their house. And one of them, Martha, she's, she's totally distracted by all the hustle and bustle and hurry of having someone, kind of unexpected guest, in their house. Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And like any sister, there starts to become some hard feelings about that. If you've ever had a sibling and your parents said, uh, you two go clean the garage— you know in about 12 minutes, one of the kids is going to come back and say, Mom, make him help! Well, that's exactly what happens here in this moment. Martha says, Jesus, would you make her help? But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Hear this, church. Or indeed, only one 
thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The more we find ourselves in company with Jesus, the more we will lose our hurry. John Ortberg, a really prominent author and a pastor on the West Coast, tells the story of when he accepted his first like big, ginormous, megachurch job, and he was totally panicked about what the, how is he going to do that new work, that new job. And so he goes to his spiritual mentor, a man named Dallas Willard. I'm curious, how many of you have heard the name Dallas Willard? Okay, many of you. So prominent theologian and biblical scholar and, and taught philosophy at USC for decades. He's an amazing man. He's written a ton. So John Orberg uh, is, one of his ment- is one of his mentors, or pardon me, reverse that. Dallas Willard is um, John's you get it. <laughs> a lot of words today. And John calls Dallas, and he says, what, what should I do? What's the silver bullet? How do I do this job? And this is what Dallas Willard said to him. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Do you want to know how to do what God has called you to do? You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Dallas Willard has written something like 20 books, and I've written exactly zero, but I want to change that a little bit. See, in my experience, the more we wonder if we're getting something right like this, or trying to get rid of something in our life, the more we focus on it, the more we actually find ourselves obsessed with that, and nothing changes. If you every day put a giant chocolate cake on the counter and you really were trying to give up chocolate cake, you couldn't keep on focusing on the chocolate cake. And so it is with hurry. The more that we tell ourselves, man, I'm in a rush. I am exhausted. I am so hurried. This life is totally out of control. But look what Mary does. Mary doesn't focus on the hurry. She focuses on the guests. And where Dallas Willard got it wrong, I think, is not to just eliminate hurry from your life, but to focus on the one who will eliminate hurry from your life. Focus on Jesus Christ. Then all of a sudden, these things won't become so central. John Orberg, in that same book called Soul Keeping, he goes on to say that there's a, a big difference between busy and hurry. There's a big difference in our lives when it comes to busy or hurry. Busy is how we just manage all the extraordinary gifts that cross our way. Family, relationships, children, work, hobbies, skills. We have essentially like this problem of wealth management. We have all this extraordinary blessing that we are invited to steward and take care of. And that's going to make for a busy life. A hurried life is when that stuff becomes central. A hurried life is when those are the things that actually all of a sudden really matter to you. A hurried life is when all that business becomes a distracted rush and we lose our awareness that God is at the table eating with us and He with Him. Jesus stands at the door and He knocks. 
and he wants to be with you. And the more that he's with you, one of the things that you will let go of is you will let go, you will lose your hurry. But the second thing that will happen to you is you also will lose your grip. You're going to lose your grip. There's this story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, about this very, very short man. Very short. And he's a tax collector, which means he's also hated. He's a short, hated man. And for those reasons, and maybe lots of others, he's eager to see Jesus. He's heard the news about Jesus, and he cannot see Jesus walking down the road. He cannot see around even the children, it seems. He can't work his way to the front. And so he runs and sprints ahead of Jesus, and he climbs his tree. And his name is Zacchaeus. And because this is what Jesus does, he sees this man, and he stops and says, Zacchaeus, you could probably, some of you are probably singing the song in your head right now, aren't you? You come down from there, right? From going to your house today, and we're going to have a meal together. So they come to this meal, and this is what happens at that little moment there. Luke chapter 19, right in the middle of the meal, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was hated not just because he was a tax collector, but how tax collecting actually worked. Rome would secretly send the amount that was supposed to be sent back to them to a tax collector. And only they would know the amount. And with the help of Roman soldiers, they would go and they would collect these taxes. And anything that they were able to collect above and beyond what the Romans said was theirs to keep. And they were the only ones who actually knew what the Romans said they needed. And so this man had truly, indeed, clearly stolen from people to gain his wealth. He obviously, in his dishonesty, had sought to really work, and he built a life, and he built up all this wealth, and he was focused pretty much on himself. But then he hosts Jesus, and he finds out that holding on to that stuff won't matter. The life he's built is going to slip through his fingers. He can't take it with him. And the more time that he spends with Jesus, the more he, he lets go and he finds himself saying, Lord, I'm going to take half of what I own and I'm going to give it to the poor. I'm going to give sacrificially so that others might know something of your sustenance and help. Furthermore, if I've, if I've wronged anybody, and he surely has, I will repay them back four times. See, the longer Zacchaeus spends time with Jesus, even at this one single meal, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm coming to your house today. The more he lets go of that which he thought would save him. How is your relationship with money? How is your sense of thinking, not just about money, but the stuff that money can buy in our culture? 
Have you found yourself sort of erecting and building this huge wall around you that you are convinced is the kind of safety you need and deserve to live in Boulder? Zacchaeus has found salvation and losing his grip on that. How's your relationship? Do you find yourself holding on tight? When you examine your own finances and and the way you spend and leverage your money, are, are you giving sacrificially to the poor? Or are you giving away just enough to say you've given some away? Holding the rest. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if I come in, and if I have supper with you, you will receive salvation. You will lose your hurry. You will lose your grip. Elsewhere, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you serve God or money, but you're not going to serve both. There's only one master. Who will it be? As you think about your own relationship with your resources and what you do with them, do you see that there's a loosening? Do you see that you're finding letting go because you are in the presence of Jesus Christ? So you'll lose your hurry, you'll lose your grip, and finally you will receive your transformation. John 2 tells the story of this really famous wedding feast right at the very beginning of his ministry. And he's been invited to this feast, and apparently so has his mom. And, and the, the wedding uh, is, seems like it's going great, except they have not properly budgeted or prepared for who's going to be there. And so they've, want, they've run out of wine way too soon. And I don't know if this is exactly the way it happened, but this is the way I kind of play it in my head. Jesus uh, it's sort of they're partying, and Mary, uh, his mom, says, Jesus, they've, they've run out of wine. And Jesus is like, well, what do you want me to do about it? And we don't know anything at all, really, very little, about what Jesus was like as a, as a child. There's, there's nothing that's trusted that's out there about his childhood. But I think Mary knows. Because I think she just looked at him like... She looks at the servants, and she says, do whatever this guy tells you to do. And she walks away. She knows. So Jesus is like, get, put some water in those jars. They put some water in the jars, and they say, okay, now the jars are full. Take a big ladle of it and bring it to uh, the master of ceremonies. And the master of ceremonies takes this, and he begins to drink it, and it is the most exquisite wine that he's ever had. It's like, I can't, pulls over the bridegroom and says, I can't believe you saved the best for last. see, what I want us to see is this thing that Jesus wants to do with this water, this thing that he does, he takes the, the simplest of starting materials. Kind of really uninteresting. There's just, it's everywhere. Water is basically ubiquitous, right? 80% of the planet is water. Jesus takes the simplest of materials and transforms them. 
And what Jesus wants to do with this, what he does do with this wine, he also wants to do with you. He wants to take the most basic starter materials of your life and he wants to transform you. The Bible is filled with this message. It's filled with this idea that he's going to take whatever the starting materials are, the the basis of stuff, and he's going to grow it and transform it the more that we sit in his presence. The Bible says that we are orphaned from God, but then we are adopted as his children. The Bible says that at one time we were slaves And in Christ, we will be made an heir to his kingdom. That those who are lost will be found in Christ. Ephesians says those who are dead in their transgressions will be made alive in Christ. He'll take the simplest starter material that's, that's kind of uninteresting and maybe somewhat gross, and he'll transform it to his good use. Jesus stands at the door and knocks at your heart, knocks at the door of your heart. He says, let me in. Let me save you. Let me help you lose your hurry, lose your grip, and receive your transformation. And by my observation, the longer that we get to sit with him, the the sooner we get to do this in our life, the more the transformation takes root. So don't wait another day. Don't wait another day. Probably everyone in this room who's had some sort of regular contact with Christians can imagine the person that they know who seems like surprisingly gracious and free with their time and exquisite in their kindness. That's because they've allowed Jesus Christ to take on the starting materials of their stuff, of their life, and begin to transform them. I love this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. This is a a prayer of Paul's praying for the Christians in Boulder. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. His Spirit in your inner being, Jesus dwelling in your hearts, that you will be filled to overflowing. How does this happen? How does he get in? How is it possible for the Lord to be in those places? Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? spend just a few moments in silence and then Lindsay will lead us in prayer.